Hello everyone and welcome to the next edition of the VTX podcast. Here at the Veterinary Thought Exchange we like to start by asking what are you thinking? And this week we are so pleased and privileged to be joined by the amazing Lou Northway or Lou the Vet Nurse. She is going to be talking about her amazing career in veterinary nursing but also her new challenges which include being a mother. In our clinical segment this week, we are joined again by the amazing Professor John Hall. And and him and I are going to be chatting about all things hemoabdomen, including some of the tricky decisions that we have to make in these really challenging cases. And just to say a big shout out to Veterinary Instrumentation for their kind support and sponsorship of the podcast today. Just to introduce myself, my name is Scott. I'm one of the founders of VTX and I'm a specialist in small animal internal medicine. And as always, I am joined by my wee pal... Karen. Hi. Hi, Karen. Hiya. Are you okay? Just being wee. Good. (laughs) Right. Well, Lou, it's really uh, amazing to have you on the podcast for the second time. We won't talk about the first time. Um, I don't know. I, I, I suppose we always sort of ask, you know, start by talking about, you know, introducing people. I, I think, um, I wanted to kind of summarize you in a few words to begin with. So you are a vet nurse. And you are, um, I was, well, I like to say social media star. I think we likened you to maybe Beyonce before Gaga. I don't know one of those. But actually, excitingly, you're also now mother. (laughs) So which one of those titles is most prominent in your life at the moment? Oh, definitely, (laughs) definitely being mum. Definitely. That's, um, that is my whole life right now. Trying to adjust to mum life. Yeah. I wouldn't say social media wise. I'm like Beyonce though. You know, it's like social media without the perks really of all the other celebs. (laughs) (laughs) So you've been doing mum now for a wee while. Tell us a little bit about how that's going. How's, How's that going? Yeah. Oh, wow. It was such a whirlwind. And it's, it's so funny thinking back so when I last spoke to you, Scott, and um, I was heavily pregnant, and I had yeah. this thought that actually mum life would be, you know, quite easy because that nurses are quite maternal, and we're used to dealing with young animals and young babies. Must be similar. Oh, how wrong was I? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's been it's been a massive learning curve and um, really really hard work, if I'm honest. Um, but yeah. I've loved it. It's um, I feel like I have a a, a purpose in life now for the whole rest of my life it's very special but um yeah it, it is it's it's interesting you say um do you know some this is really I was having a conversation yesterday with a guy from a from a drug company actually and he was he was talking about his kids and he said to me someone described kids to me the other day in a really sort of accurate and descriptive way and he's like it's like having a face tattoo and I sort of took him I took a moment to think about that I was like that's a really weird analogy and he's like you know when you make the decision to do it you really you've got to remember you can't get rid of it (laughs) and I was like actually when you think about it yeah that's actually a really sort of surprisingly insightful way of thinking about it it is isn't it you know it's really good it really is. And it is so, it is, it is so like that. Many times when my husband and I have had like really tough days, we've looked at each other and never not said it out loud, but you know, given the look like, oh my gosh, this is so hard. <laughs> but, yeah. but then, you know, the next day they wake up and they smile at you. Um, and 
all of those you know those the hard days just go and you know I'm five months in now and I'm already thinking oh my gosh I want a little baby again because my baby didn't stay small for long you know but it's just hormones and I'm not going to get pregnant again like absolutely no way it's just hormones but all babies are cute and I know that everyone thinks their own baby is cute but I'm not honestly just saying that he is the most spectacular looking little isn't he the most spectacular looking little person like and he's I just I think he is really there's something special truly truly and the hair he's you know amazing so it much I mean just so much joy yeah it's crazy yeah the hair is nuts and the cheeks I I just love his he's got the biggest cheeks though when he was he came out so in theatre they lifted him up above the drape um and um I was just like oh my god because he was absolutely massive (laughs) Obviously, before when you were going through your pregnancy, you were off work for quite a bit of time because of the old coronavirus. Oh, it felt like forever. Mm. How how did you cope with all that? Was that that was obviously challenging? To be honest, I really didn't. It was really, really hard. And I it it was such a funny um, place to be mentally. Mm. It was probably the hardest. How many months was it? Six months I was off work for because I'd like my career sort of in practice stopped literally overnight it was like oh sorry you're pregnant you're high risk we're gonna furlough you that's it and then it was like oh but then I'm waiting for this new role as mum to start and then there was this like it was almost like being in limbo to be honest and I tried to keep myself occupied keeping my social media pages going but a lot of the inspiration for everything I do there comes from being in practice so like a conversation I have in the day or a case idea within the middle of the night or something like that and then sort of all my inspiration dried up. And then I got really, I struggled with my mental health sort of being on my own because I'm an extrovert, if you haven't noticed. Love people, love, I love bouncing off of people. Um, and yeah, it was just really, really hard. And I got involved with um, sort of some BDS webinars and things like that to sort of reframe how you're thinking. But even that sort of didn't really cut it. Um, in the grand scheme of things I really struggled and I think a lot of people that were furloughed did as well um and then I had crazy pregnancy hormones as well it's just not a good combination really yeah <laughs> I think well, I think though also I mean obviously you've got you'd a lot of things to contend with there and I think you know it well god it seems like a lifetime ago all of this and hopefully we're kind of getting out of this madness but you'd a lot to contend with there and it's not just one thing and I, but I think actually picking up on one thing you said I think is one of the key things being furloughed as a veterinary nurse, when you're a very practical, um, you know, and it's, it's a very practical job generally, you know, you're in there with patients, with people. I think no disrespect to people that don't do our job, but, you know, some of my friends have been furloughed to work in insurance. Now, that's slightly different because you take your office home and you do a similar sort of thing, but just maybe not surrounded with all the people in your office. But actually taking a vet nurse out of a vet clinic, that becomes quite distressing really if you it really is and just like dealing with animals every day like I've missed touching dogs and dealing with patients so much I actually popped to work Mm. the other day um to see my manager um very briefly and I went into reception and out of one of the consult rooms came this dog and it was one of my favorites one of my regulars she's called Dottie and I was like oh Dottie and even in my mask with my non-uniform on I swear she recognized me and then as I turned Mm. to sort of walk back out again um, her owner was walking to collect her from the vet that had just come out and she was like oh no I knew that she'd recognize you and it literally made me tear up because 
I just thought that is what I miss so much, you know, knowing my patients, dealing with them, talking to their owners, how are you getting on? And then, of course, the client was like, oh, my gosh, you had a baby and wanted to know all about him. And that I, I can't wait to sort of rekindle my, my relationships with the clients again and my colleagues. It's just it's been quite lonely, to be honest. So you obviously a vet nurse is a big part of who you are and, and your life. So I was interested to know from a vet nursing point of view what are the things that you're passionate about what what are the things that that you're passionate about with your job as a vet nurse I think it's being really mindful about every step of how you are when you're in practice so from how you communicate with each other so your colleagues to how you approach caring for your patients so taking those extra moments just to stop and think so if I can improve a patient's care by using my knowledge sharing my knowledge then I will do and I think that positively impacts sort of my team as well and vice versa you know if they can share their hints and tips which is going to improve the care we provide to the patient or the way we approach dealing with the client then that that to me I think really is the most important thing to me in practice that's what keeps me happy is feeling part of the team but doing a really good job as well Um, but overall of course it's doing the the best for the patient Mm -hmm. and I think that's one of the things that you're probably in many ways really well known for is the fact that you are about kind of that positive change and obviously that empowering people to improve and and I don't want to put words in your mouth but I feel that potentially that is for me what comes across with a lot of what you do particularly in social media is 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 slightly empowering people to do better and I don't know if that's what you mean to do but I think that certainly comes comes across can I don't know if you can talk a little bit about how you translate that practically into practice so how do you actually go about making genuine change or do you come up against it every day (laughs) oh no well I I think when I was younger my approach was perhaps different but as I've got older I've got very um involved with RCBS knowledge um and looking at sort of quality improvement um and also human factors and that's all about making improvements and sort of like the way you go about doing so so to make change change is scary a lot of people can automatically just be like nope how we're doing things is just finally why do we need to change it up but if we're looking at up-to-date evidence and it has proven that there are better ways of doing things and I think it's time to have the discussion and trial it um, and see if you can make improvements um some people will say oh well you know we don't have any patient deaths well no you don't but you know if how many of your patients are coming back to bed cold, for example, after an operation, you know, can we improve that? We always can. And it's from, you know, um, how many happy clients you have in reception to how many settled patients you have in kennels to, you know, the analgesia you're using to the sort of pro- the process and the protocols of how you care for patients, all of those things should be regularly looked at. Um, and that is sort of what I do in practice. So it's just having a reflection at every step of the way how are we doing measuring it auditing it and then having a chat and seeing what we can do so that is like me in practice really do you ever feel that you come up against any barriers to doing that are there things that 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 have maybe not allowed you to do that or navigate that in such an easy way yeah some of the things I think I've come up against in the past has been like personality clashes so like how your sort of your approach to to change and how you communicate with others so doing training has helped me 
with that so knowing what sort of color personality you are oh I love that I love it I love it I'm obsessed and then like who your team members are and then how they will take information better if you approach them in a certain way so I'm sort of a very um oh I can't do you know what I can't even remember what I came out as but very social and um full of ideas we'll we'll debate the colors later but the point being actually I the 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 assessment I did I came out the opposite to what most veterinary specialists are right so it was like a very opposite distribution from from whatever and and actually yeah that has helped me understand so much more about the way that I interact with certain people because I yeah. used to just look at people and be like do you are you are we on the same planet like what <laughs> well and then and they'll, and they'll say the same about you yeah. but I um, worked with a vet years ago and um her and I we just never sort of really like she just never seemed to want to be my friend and I used to try so hard to like you know be helpful and be friendly and then actually on reflection when I did the course about personality types I thought bloody hell I really must have rubbed her up the wrong way behaving like that yeah she must have been like gosh she's a bad smell she just won't go away she tries too hard you know if I'd been sort of toned it down a bit and being less helpful perhaps maybe we would have got on better I don't know but it's just so interesting But, but that's but that's the point I think it's really interesting to think about it in that way where actually we all do think very differently and that's okay but I think it's how we then navigate through things I suppose together I think every team needs to do it every team should do it because I think it breaks it it really stops you thinking about yourself and thinking of someone in such a black and white way when actually it's think of them in the colorful way (laughs) because then you'll know how to communicate with them if they're upset if they're angry if you want to make a change I think that means like there's so much there that would help it almost should be a compulsory thing I think actually like a annual team personality typing meeting or something like that no I think it let's let's find a better name for it that sounds a bit yeah (laughs) the annual team personality type convention (laughs) that sounds a bit much who do you think you are the veterinary edition that's what it should be oh that's good no that's I think that's a great idea oh do you know what there's a course there's this course there for you Scott yes there you go that's another CPD course you could do that's we're doing it we'll give you commission for that one um I I wonder what (laughs) I wonder what your proudest if you can think of one what's your proud apart from obviously producing beautiful baby what is your proudest achievement as far as your vet nurse career so far so it's really really hard um probably I would say getting the RCVS inspiration award in 2019 I think that probably was like I was so proud because I was being awarded for being inspirational which meant that I had positively influenced other people and that's what I've been you know I've worked so hard to do over the last few years so by sharing hints and tips and supporting my colleagues you know if I can help them enjoy their job more feel supported then what what more could I want and obviously if you have a happy team and happy colleagues and you've helped people understand things better the patient care would have been improved as well so I think to me um yeah that's definitely my proudest moment I know amazing yeah and really truly amazing moving on to kind of your ability I suppose your ability to influence and you talked about you know obviously you've done some great things in practice but you've also made this decision to kind of have this more public platform to uh, I suppose again truly inspire and, and potentially influence change in that way as well but it's a totally different totally different ball game putting yourself um onto social media like that and I suppose there's no doubt that that has been a very successful um 
uh, venture uh, and you have gained a lot of followers, you know, on social media. When you set up that Instagram account and you said, right, I'm going to be Lou the vet nurse and you put that picture on there and you started to make these very beautiful and very well created posts. Did you ever think that it would become what it has become today? <laughs> Absolutely not. No, it blew me away. Um, because like within the first few months, it was like, you know, I've cut 50 followers and then 100 followers and then a couple of hundred, then the first thousand and then 5,000 and then 10,000. And now I think we're on 16,000 and it's just, it is cr- absolutely crazy. Um, no, it's nuts. And I think, you know, it has really positively shifted, uh, you know, how people are using social media because now there are hundreds, if not thousands of people doing similar, which I think is fantastic, sharing knowledge and inspiring each other. So uh, social media can be a negative place. And I think if we as veterinary professionals can go to social media and find some positive things rather than just, you know, the negative things we read about ourselves, then it can only be a good thing. But I think, you know, Instagram, as we've said many times, is actually a very positive space comparative to other (coughs) Facebook social media platforms. And um, I think what I have been blown away by, and I think you've obviously inspired, I think, I don't know, another generation that makes you sound really old. But um, this this other sort of, you know, these other vet nurses, particularly, I really would focus on vet nurses like I'm the, the, the kindest most sort of inclusive nicest things that have ever been said about anything we've done in social media have been vet nurses saying that you know they are so kind the community of vet nurses um and just doing some amazingly inspiring things and we've had quite a few on the podcast actually and just loved chatting to them and and how passionate they are about what they do and that I, I, Karen I think you would agree that really has been quite I find that quite humbling and quite kind of inspiring really it's amazing and like everyone I feel like is like one of my little slogans is find your na- find your niche or embrace your niche mm. and people are bringing their niches to Instagram get yeah. you know using their knowledge doing their advanced courses sharing their little pearls of pearls of wisdom and it's rubbing on off, off on everyone else and it's brilliant yeah. was there a moment like a kind of not a, I don't know a mic drop moment or like um you know when Kim Kardashian broke the internet when she had that photo of her with a big bum and champagne or whatever. I don't know. Whenever people break the internet, <laughs> was there like a break the internet moment where you posted one thing and it went like absolutely mental? Was there one kind of sort of breakaway moment for you from a kind of social media um, point of view? So the first post probably was for Veterinary Awareness Month in 2019. Um, and that was one just like an infographic of all the different things we do in practice that got shared so Sorry. much it reached um, half a million people that was crazy that blew my mind um although there was a typo and someone could said out of you know all the like thousands of times it was shared one person said he spelt scheduled wrong I was like oh cheers thanks no worries (laughs) thanks thanks, though that's social media though you often get the odd negative comment or something unhelpful and you're like oh well everyone knew what I meant you know my spelling isn't always great sorry um and then the other post was one actually I I didn't do as leader vet nurse but I did on my um on the Wendover Heights, my practices Facebook page, um, and that was resharing a Be Like Jill post, just basically saying if your pet is sick, speak to your vet. But I elaborated further, and then again, that got sort of 200, 300 shares, likes, comments. It was it went nuts, um, and that was just like wow, you know, that just shows you that you can make a positive impact using it. It doesn't just have to be the negative news stories and the whinges that go far and wide. You know, you can bring the goodness to the social media platforms as well. As I've said, there's never, let's never 
underplay the significance of some of the positivity that can come up just on your phone. And I think that's never to be underplayed for me because we definitely can be impacted by the smallest little positive thing, you know, and, and I think that that's can make such a difference. So when obviously you're on maternity leave just now and that's allowed. <laughs> so um I presume I presume you plan to and I know you've taken a bit of time sort of downtime from social media which I think is such a wise thing to do and I don't and, have time yeah no, <laughs> like I making know. the infographics and like writing and researching and, and, yeah. and then doing all the referencing and stuff it takes so much time I just don't have time right now I really keep thinking oh I must make some posts but I just it just hasn't been possible yet there, there is a huge amount when you're you're making content like that there's a huge amount of kind of time and effort that goes into it especially when you're trying to really make sure it's right as a factually right but also looks right and all that kind of stuff so I suppose the question is what what's your what's next what do you once you come back from maternity leave if you ever do you don't have to um but if you want if you're going to I do. um I would suggest you do um, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I would suggest you do because and it was so funny actually Andy my husband who's a vet nurse who part of VTX obviously he, I remember the first day that we met our children and we literally did, the first day we met them and we came away from the foster carer's house and we were in the car and he said to me he actually and he'll tell he'll die now that I've said this he said to me oh my god I think I'll just I don't think I ever want to go back to work I'll just look after them forever fast forward like literally desperate yeah <laughs> desperate. like yeah, I felt like that the first 12 weeks I was like I can't I'm, yeah I felt similar though I was so like in through the first 12 weeks and it's really hard for the first 12 weeks and um, my little baby boy is such a chunk and he just wanted to eat all day all night every day and night for 12 weeks basically it's all I did was feed him and I thought to myself how like how do people do this how do people go back to work and leave them like I just couldn't imagine it and now we're at the five month mark and I you know he's a bit less needing of me all the time um you know I think oh, I just want to go back and have a break <laughs> you know just a few hours yeah totally so, um, I'm gonna do some keeping in touch days and do a few half days and see how it goes and just ease yourself in gently yes <laughs> do you have any sort of goals things that you want to achieve now things that you kind of really are focused on moving forward yeah well but last year I, I did have the opportunity to speak at a few conferences that were like bucket list opportunities and um, one of them was going to Ireland to Vetcon and speaking there and you know I was really sort of excited and I was like wow I'm really flattered they want me to speak and I was so excited about going and then of course Covid happened and all of it everything got cancelled so I felt really sad because I was prepared to sort of you know work really hard up until when I went on maternity leave bash out a few conferences you know tick them off I've done this you know woohoo and then it didn't happen um so I'd really like to still have those experiences um but I think sort of goals is just to carry on doing a bit of what I've been doing to be honest um I want to focus a little bit more on um the quality improvement and also human factor side of things because I just I think it's so important more almost more so early on in your career than the clinical stuff you know what we actually do on the shop floor it's how we treat we treat each other how we communicate how we reflect on situations how we cope at, at when we're at work um, I don't think we spend enough time on that. So I want to encourage teams to start doing that and properly communicating. And so, um, yeah, that is 
the direction I think I'm going to go in theme wise over the next year. That really is the most brilliant kind of strategy because I think that really is fundamentally what we need to focus on because ultimately, and again, I think it comes down to, and this is the kind of people like you, I think have got the opportunity to really make change because again, it comes down to talking and then doing and then you know particularly for some of the big corporates to see we're doing we've got this thing now where we do this thing and we tick this box and we do this and I'm like well that's fine I mean that looks good in paper and you get your you know you tick all your boxes but what about actually what's happening on the ground are people actually treating each other very well and the answer half the time is not really um and I think so if there's a strat if you have a way of kind of infiltrating and truly making people accountable for the way that we're actually behaving to each other on a, on a daily basis. Yeah. That's like, there's your Kim Kardashian mic drop, Obama, whatever yeah. moment. Like, it, it is. I believe that truly. Yeah. It's the backbone of a team and, and doing good work. You need your team to be working well together. And that's, you know, breaking the boundaries down, you know, leaving your ego at the door being nice to each other you know incivility mm, 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 mm. you know we need to we need to be really mindful of how we talk to each other um you know it doesn't matter if you're a specialist or the person that cleans out the kennels in the evening you know be nice to each other you all have an important role in practice it's just different um and I think you know I've worked in a few different practices and you know my team at the moment that I work with are all absolutely lovely um and I don't feel we have that sort of big ego I'm big or small situation going on but in the past I have been in that situation and it really affected how the team interacted with each other um, and also you know if things went wrong how it was dealt with and managed and people coped because no one was talking um, and you know blame culture that's something we speak about all the time at the moment it's sort of that you read about in the vet times for example in other places um, but we can talk about it on paper but we actually need to address doing it in practice as well and not oh that's that's a nice thought but no you really do you know no no one goes to work to make a mistake um so if the person feels supported and you look at all the different factors that influence that mistake often it's not just that one person there's so many other factors um and you know addressing it as a team oh I could just go on and on and on about it but um it's just it's so important there's though. so much more yeah and I think I love that no blame culture so I worked for a company who should remain obviously nameless who very strong focus on no blame culture and I remember some particular individuals who were like the advocates for the no blame culture who would be the most hideous of the blamers <laughs> And you just were like, what, what's happening? Like, it just, I, I almost sometimes was like a gasp of like, did you not just, did we not just say, like, what are we doing? You know, and that kind of thing where it's easy sometimes to say, we do this, 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 you know, we give you this link, this phone number, this poster, read this, do this, there's a policy on this, and this will help you, this. And actually, I'm like, yeah, but what does it all, it's just a tick box exercise. And this is what I think actually yeah. actually really it's being human with it human yeah i love that the human factor so it's a, yes. and that's i presume what you mean yeah it is the human factor because we're human beings so let's just do that you know i suppose lots of the conversations we've have had on here you know we talk about things and, and yeah we're just talking and hopefully talking helps to kind of air some of these things in a, a wider way but i've talked to so many people obviously you included who i think i go away thinking no but they're actually 
they're going to change it and it's going to be different, you know, and I think that's really uh, amazing. So, well, I can't wait to see how you change the world. That's very in- inspiring. Um, yeah, I um, feel very empowered at the moment. I, I attended good. the um, the vet-led human factors conference last week and it was absolutely yeah. amazing, really inspiring. And yeah, oh, my brain is like popcorn at the moment with um, ideas. That's why I'm having my keeping in touch day in two weeks time because I said to my practice manager, I've just got so much I need to talk to you about and I want to implement when I come back. And we just, we've got a, head nurse, a new head nurse about to start. Um, so I was like, I'll, I'll give her a few weeks and then I'll come in because I don't want to overwhelm her with ideas. <laughs> this poor, this poor woman's like, oh no, she's coming uh, back. Oh, here we go. <laughs> yeah. I already, I do already know who she is and she's lovely. Okay. So I think we're going to get on really Good. well, but it's. She knows what she's in, in, in for. <laughs> oh yeah. She knows what she's in for. <laughs> so yeah, we've talked about obviously all the, I love that all that, that stuff and, and, and obviously how you, as uncomfortable as I think people like, you know, people, I'm going to tell you that you inspire people and you might be like, oh, that a cringe, but you do. So, but I, I'm interested to know who inspires you. Mm. Well, when I got my inspiration award, I was a bit sort of like, oh, I felt a bit funny about it at the start because I, I get, I'm, I'm like a sponge. I absorb everyone else's positive vibes and I'm inspired so much by other people and my like the one vet nurse who will always and forever be my absolute idol will be Louise O'Dwyer because I followed her from the beginning of my oh. career and whenever you would hear her speak she's one of those like people that you always you know you're she's in front of all of these people but you feel like you're just having a one-to-one conversation it's always relatable and she was so intelligent but never never patronizing she was just so just yeah amazing absolutely amazing so yeah she was definitely she was my my number one I think it will be she will be for the majority of vet nurses in our profession because she was you know I think the modern day Florence Nightingale in my eyes she really was I think she made an impact in so many people's lives from what I from, I knew Louise working with it's now and we um crossed over a bit and and I just remember and also and I love this about her as a personality I love the way she was a, such a presence though. She had a, she was so, her, her dress sense was amazingly quirky and, and cool, that kind of fifties vibe and just everything about her. She, she loves, she's such a fun person, you know, just a fun person to be around. Um, just, you know, she used to go and do crazy sort of CPD stuff on cruise ships in America. I don't know if, mm-hmm. you, like she used to get these yeah. amazing gigs doing yeah. amazing CPD. And I used to be like, L- 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 let's try and, can you get me on a ship? Like get me on a cruise ship. Like what's happening? <laughs> you know, she did such a, just a, just such a, a, an amazing and what a loss really for the profession. Just amazing person. So that's a, gr- such, that's yeah, a great such answer. Awesome. Like she, she did so much, didn't she? Mm-hmm. So qualified, like. The, probably the most qualified vet nurse in our profession I think you know she'd done everything BTS and ECC BTS anesthesia analgesia advanced um, you know medicine and surgery you know just mind blown really like amazing yeah and I think like you say the the, the we will you'll never know the true impact of someone like her and and how many people she truly inspired like you would never be able to quantify that yep. she was awesome. what a legacy though that's amazing amazing so then you have to in your wisdom supply us with a little bit of advice so for, and I always like to think not for us but for someone listening who um you know it's about just touching those people that just um need that little bit of of inspiration maybe at a time where they're not feeling so great about themselves but 
what kind of words of advice would you give to anyone listening um, particularly I suppose from the nursing profession? This might be a bit of a long one so I apologise okay, <laughs> but no, um, I think probably what I would say is never so I'm going to quote Louise Dwyer, O'Dwyer actually because um, she I, I remember once on a forum um, a vet nurse was uh, talking um, sort of quite down about herself and she wrote something like um, you're never just a nurse and that's always stayed in my mind and I would like everyone to know that Louise O'Dwyer said that never just a nurse like you're awesome um and the way I think sort of to keep yourself motivated and pushing forwards is um to just to keep 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 learning think about what you love focus on it hone in on it um and learn 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 and then share 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 and just by sharing pearls of wisdom with your colleagues you'll feel like you're adding loads to your team and your patients will benefit and it will just give you a really good dose of job satisfaction but yeah don't ever just think yourself I'm just a nurse you're not you're awesome you're really skilled you know so much you're always going to keep learning um and just to value yourself gosh yeah I think we need one of you in every practice I think that's what we probably need (laughs) we need to just multiply (laughs) multiply you it's having it's just like feeling like you can you can speak you know you don't you we're not all you know it's it, it's a modern world now we're all equal you know nurses are their voices in practice are just as valued as everyone else just feel like I just wish people would feel confident enough to speak up and share and I hope that things are changing and I want things to change but as I say it comes back to that human practice thing I mentioned earlier um you know how your team culture is really culture is everything do you know that's and, and again we've we've Funnily enough, the RVN Speaks from Instagram was on the podcast. And she Lacey, actually, yeah. Oh, Lacey. She's I love what, Lacey. Oh, yeah. One of my faves. She's, and again, actually, she, it was funny because she she really was very much culture. That was her thing. She was like, it's about the culture and it's about your values, she said. And I always, I've said this again. At the time, I was like, hmm, I didn't, I didn't quite connect exactly with what she meant. And, you know, since then, now that she said it I'm like oh yeah values I mean I don't yeah oh, I see you know but she was so much about cult you know that kind of culture and I, and I think actually when you said you know you're not just a nurse and, and, and about about speaking and, and having a voice I suppose her her she's called her Instagram page RVN Speaks and the, and that kind of I suppose encapsulates that's what she's doing exactly that yes you know and that's amazing so I think I know the answer to this question, but we have to ask because we always do. And I, I feel like I can't not ask you, but if you were to do all of this again and go back to your teenage self and making those decisions about being a vet nurse, would you do it again? <laughs> yeah, 110%. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I would maybe do things, um, sort of the the roles that I've had a slightly different way around um, and maybe done a bit more charity work abroad than what I did, I did manage to do when I was able before I had my baby <laughs> oh it's all over now oh reflection is a fine thing oh. um, yeah in about 15 years I can do it again um yeah. but yeah I I wouldn't have changed it I wouldn't change anything I've loved it everything I've, I mean don't get me wrong it hasn't been easy always and I haven't loved it every step of the way always because there have been hard times but I still look forward to going to work um I'm always learning I feel like I I get better as a nurse every year um so yeah I'm gonna be in my greens until I'm I can't get out of them when I'm 80. (laughs) (laughs) I struggle to get out of mine just now but it's not to do with age it's just to do with the um increase in weight. (laughs) I said to um 
my practice manager I said that I'm going to be coming back to work in my maternity trousers because I can't do my old greens up listen you've actually you've been pregnant at a very good time because none of us can do our freaking trousers up so you're okay lockdown lockdown yeah we I'm so glad we've chatted again actually because it's you know and I I'm, I was always embarrassed about the fact our first recording didn't work out but actually um what a great opportunity what a great opportunity to talk to you again and and um and it's I just yeah it's really I, I love I really am so in love with this sort of human factors thing that you've you've mentioned and I just I'm really excited to see how that kind of works out so thanks so much honestly I really appreciate it oh you're very welcome thanks for having me we're now moving into our clinical segment with John and I just want to mention again that our podcast today has been really kindly sponsored by Veterinary Instrumentation, who are a global animal health care organisation, which have proudly served the industry for over three decades. We actually talked about uh, a veterinary instrumentation product this week, Karen, on our clinical post. So have you ever heard of the Lone Star Ring Retractor? Uh, no. Don't feel you need to say yes. <laughs> The answer is no. No, so actually, John, funnily enough, introduced this to me. Do check out our social media this week. Um, really, the, the the key thing here is that with any sort of surgery, visualisation is key. And the Lone Star Ring Retractor certainly helps you do that. So do do check that out. It really is a really very cool piece of kit, I promise. Um, so let's move on to our chat with John. And to check out more information about veterinary instrumentation, then do check out the show notes. Okay, so um, thanks so much, John, for joining us again on the podcast. This time we are taking a slightly different direction and we're going to talk about the approach to the uh, hemoabdomen. So I think my, the, my idea for this kind of comes off the back of the fact that these cases are always a bit stressful. And what I thought was nice is that these cases typically will come in through kind of a more ECC medicine route and will often end up coming to see a surgeon. Um, and actually, we have had conversations where we're trying to make a decision about the need for surgery or not, you know, and so that is always kind of an interesting conversation. And 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 I think some of that decision making can be quite tricky. Just to kind of set up the background of these cases, obviously, we can't cover every single nuanced presentation but let's say typically this is a, a middle-aged to older larger breed dog you know let's say larger kind of crossbreed dog that has been okay and then has very suddenly collapsed this afternoon um, and is brought into the vets for that reason and let's say we determine you know some initial blood work determines that the dog has a, a PCV that is reduced so um, the PCV let's say is 22% and our kind of initial survey has determined that there probably is free abdominal fluid in that dog's abdomen. That sounds like a pretty fair kind of general uh, pre presenting case, do you think? I'm, I'm, I'm not misrepresenting. Would you agree? Oh, God, no, absolutely no. That's quite common, isn't it? And sometimes as well, I think it can be even sometimes maybe a slow recognition of that if the animal has been maybe ataxic or a little bit lethargic. So occasionally they'll even coming through neurology as, you know, an ataxic, mm. uh, older, large breed dog, uh, and occasionally, you know, um, 
you know, just, just quiet and not wanting to get up through, say, cardiorespiratory as well. So, yeah, it's, I think making that kind of connection quickly is really helpful for the dog and to recognize that there's some free abdominal fluid there for sure. Yeah. And I think just one of the points that I always like to make on that, that subject is we, you know, we get, we get so people get so stressed about their ability to perform abdominal ultrasound. And I would say that we should all, it's not about finding an adrenal mass. It's about, although <laughs> um, there may be an adrenal mass bleeding, who knows? <laughs> After this weekend, absolutely. I'm very hypersensitive to that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry. I feel I feel like you might have just done that. So yeah, so I think um, but my point being that we don't have to be experts. What we need to be good at doing is just finding the fluid. One of the main things I would say that people often forget is if you're scanning the abdomen, which seems obvious, don't forget to scan the chest as well. Because I've seen so many, again, with these vague older crossbreed, like you said, that's maybe even come through neurology because it's a bit wobbly. We see so many pericardial effusions, that, not that are missed, but I think it's a very easy opportunity to scan all cavities. And again, all you need to be able to do is look for free fluid. Um, and that's something that we should all try and, and, and be as comfortable as possible doing. Absolutely. And I'll tell you what, fella, if I can find free fluid on an ultrasound, anybody can. I am, you know, it's all shades of grey to me, all wispy clouds, but you know, that lovely black appearance of free abdominal fluid with organs floating about in there. Um, you know, that just gives you an idea that it's a significant amount. But I think one thing that people do then do is they sort of will pattern recognise and say, oh, it's blood. Um, and I do think we have to be a bit careful of that because, mm-hmm. of course, there's any kind of transudate or effusion uh, can, can look that way. And so getting a needle sample, you know, quick and easy can help make some decisions moving forwards um, very fast. Yeah, and that's absolutely right. And I, I think getting that fluid, uh, you know, w- using ultrasound guidance, if you need to, a lot of the time with these big effusions, you don't even need the ultrasound. It's so effused that it's very easy just to get a sample. You know, I quite agree with that. Although I'll give you like a slightly apocryphal tale. Um, and these are always anecdotal, aren't they? That I was in practice and I had a big pot-bellied dog come in. And I thought, oh, it's got bleeding in there. You know, it was nice and pale, the whole works. And so I stuck a needle blind into this dog and uh, tapped it. And the PCV and the total solids of this fluid was kind of like something like about 60 on the PCV and um, about 80 on the total solids. And thought, oh, that's, that's pretty high. And then I put the uh, probe on the ultrasound, the ultrasound probe on the abdomen. And uh, there was no free fluid. And I just tapped the spleen. But that's interesting. <laughs> There's no problems. That's a good point. Yeah, it's a good it point. It is interesting to note that splenic, yeah, interesting to know that splenic blood actually often has a higher mm. PCV than circulating. So if you were to if you were to do that and you the PCV of the blood that you've tapped from the abdomen is considerably higher than circulating, and that comparison is super important, um, then you know, consider maybe you've tapped the spleen. Or maybe actually it's a slightly older, more chronic bleed. And so the blood in the abdomen is now more concentrated in the circulation. As a consequence of water being pulled back off it, the dog's reabsorbing, but also as a consequence probably of some degree of intravascular hemodilution if you've been giving fluid therapy as well. So in essence, what we're looking for, if we are wanting to confirm a hemoabdomen, typically then when we do that fluid analysis, and obviously that's very important, we'd be looking for a PCV that is kind of comparable 
to what is in the circulation, right? So in, in the majority of cases, we're looking for that kind of comparable PCV. Well, if it's an acute bleed, absolutely. And, and I think that can be deceptive as well, because of course, in that initial sort of extremely acute stage, the dog's PCV and total solids in the circulation won't actually drop. And so they'll be pale, they'll be tachycardic and the blood pressure may be low if they're not managing to compensate with that increased heart rate. Um, but their PCV and total solids won't be reduced. And, and again, that's another thing to just not be fooled by and then think, oh, well, it can't be bleeding um, because that's not changed because everything's fallen in the same proportion. Mm -hmm. A little sort of, I suppose, one of the little things that we do see that might just guide you in that direction and, and often is helpful in these dogs that just aren't doing right, but it's all a bit vague. Like you said, um, that PCV will initially um, will not uh, necessarily drop uh, dramatically just because there's been a bleed. And that's kind of to do with that splenic splenic contraction typically what might be lower than expected would be the total solids so often interestingly the total solids might drop before the bcv drops and if you're looking for kind of subtle little hints as to oh there may have been a bleed then that may sort of help uh guide you in that direction oh definitely i mean if the if the bleed happens there and then then there'll be no change if the you know in that first sort of compensatory period where the dog's pulling fluid out of the extracellular compartment into the circulation, then you'll get that fall in total solids, but not PCV, as you say, for the splenic contraction. And then beyond that, everything starts to reduce. But it's all about that comparison with the abdominal fluid and the circulating blood, you know, PCV and the total solids, just using, you know, a capillary tube and then a refractometer is just incredibly valuable. And we see as, as well, you know, we'll, we've seen high volume abdominal fluid that looks like blood when you tap it, say, for example, after blunt force trauma. Um, but when you look at the PCV of the abdominal fluid, it might be 10 compared to a circulating of something like 35. And then, you know, you can have other effusions that have blood in them that make them look like blood. So we've seen traumatic uroabdomen um, that looks absolutely like blood in a syringe. But on that comparison, something's not been quite right and then we've gone looking for another cause yeah absolutely and I think one of the other things just about that you know the reason I chose it you know with this dog a circulating PCV of 22 or something like that I think we have to always be aware that that these dogs can be clinically affected and their PCV doesn't have to be through the floor so it doesn't have to be 8 or 10 you know a PCV of 20 if your PCV earlier on that day was 40 is going to make you feel pretty wobbly you know so i think it's all to do with um the the how that pcv is dropped within that individual it doesn't have to be we never rely on a specific number to make decisions you know a pcv of 22 is still low and it could be very low for that particular individual oh completely and i think it's not just a pcv we focus on that because we use it as a kind of a, a measurement of blood of kind of degree of bleeding or severity but it's the volume that's actually most significant to how that animal is going to get blood cells around the body. So it's a, it's a significant volume change rather than necessarily PCV. And of course, if that animal is anemic, then even a small change uh, will be will be massive in terms of their oxygen carrying capacity and maybe tipping them over the edge of what they can cope with. Um, and and you know we're we're assuming here that the animal is bleeding as a consequence of say you know, tumour bleeding or, you know, trauma or something. Um, but, you know, bearing in mind coagulopathies as well can be an issue. And so we might have multiple sites of bleeding and we're almost finding one of them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really good point. So I think, you know, we, we 
absolutely then kind of move on to think about the source of bleeding and i think you're absolutely right to to make sure that before we go tumor hunting in a, a typical hemoabdomen case that we absolutely rule out some of these other things and making sure that we have assessed platelet number and secondary coagulation through pt uh, or prothrombin time uh, and aptt or activated partial thromboplastin time is definitely an important step in this investigation because that would be a really awful thing to kind of miss and then go down the road of you know all these other things when actually that was the the primary problem so yeah really important step that's an interesting point you sort of mentioned though if you do so let's say we're doing that initial uh, survey with the ultrasound which is a really important step so we're assessing for free fluid in the abdomen and in the chest let's say we're doing that and you do come across the spleen and you are able to assess that there's this massive abnormal irregular mass lesion within the spleen i have certainly been in a situation before where decisions have been made on the basis of mass lesion in the spleen equals neoplasia equals end of road is that the right way we should be thinking in those situations i mean i think it's always one that you kind of judge according to the signalment of the animal and the owner and, and even some things, you know, like finance. Um, but no, of course not. And um, I think we know we know if we have a source of hemorrhage in the abdomen, around about 85% of those are splenic hemorrhage. And of course, if you see the splenic mass, that's going to increase the suspicion that that's what it is. Around about 10 uh, uh, hemorrhage from the liver, about 2% are from the adrenal glands. And then you know, less than two from other locations like the omentum or the kidney and things like that. And of course, you know, we can then further break it down. And there's some differences between large breed dogs and small breed dogs, but effectively around about um, 70 to 80% of, of heme abdomen with a splenic mass are due to splenic neoplasia. So if it's a, if it's a heme abdomen and it's a splenic mass that you found, and we find that we consider that the source of the problem, yeah, you're looking about 70 to 80% of those are, you know, malignant neoplasia, but that means that, you know, maybe 20% aren't, you know, we could have a, a source of extramedullary hematopoiesis, we could have some kind of benign splenic nodule, that then it's just unfortunately bled. So we can't necessarily condemn them on that, but I think it's right that the owners have an idea of the appropriate breakdowns. And, you know, of those 70 to 80% that are, in this case, a splenic malignancy, around about 80% of those to 90% are hemangiosarcoma. And we all know that carries a very guarded prognosis. And so I think they're the discussions that I would tend to have with an owner. I'd say, look, unfortunately, if it was an incidentally diagnosed mass with no blood, this, the statistics is different, you know, maybe 50-50. Um, but in a, in a dog that has, um, you know, a heme abdomen with a splenic mass, I'm saying I'm afraid 80% of these are malignant. Um, of which 80% are particularly unpleasant and will probably have already spread. And we're talking life expectancies three months to a year, depending on whether they're going to think about chemotherapy or not. Um, and, and then sort of take it from there, really, and just see where their, their head is at. You know, bearing in mind other comorbidities the dog might have had historically or, or currently in terms of the severity of the presentation. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, even you know, considerations such as you know, their, their personal philosophy on, you know, their dog's life and cancer, and, and sometimes, unfortunately, as well, finance.
But I would, I would say, um, ultimately as well, Owen, very pragmatically, to some extent, if they just want to save the dog in that moment, it almost doesn't matter because it's the bleed that's going to kill them, irrespective of the source of it. And so, you know, I will say to people, looking at, I'll not know, and we won't know until it comes back from the laboratory. But if you need more information, let's do a MET check, um, you know, thoracic radiographs or something. And even if you're capable of it, which I am not, um, scanning the heart and seeing if you can see like a, an atrial mass. Um, and, uh, and you say, look, you know, if you want to know if this is going to significantly affect whether you're going to euthanize or not, we could do a MET check. If there's METs, they might make that decision. But if they're just saying, look, I just want you to stop this bleeding and save my dog and we'll deal with whatever it is afterwards. Well, that's fine. You know, that's what we'll focus on. Mm. I think you've raised, there's so many, so many good points there. I think just one thing to kind of pick up on the difference between, you know, a dog that presents with a belly full of blood because of a bleeding mass um, uh, versus the dog that hasn't incidentally found splenic nodule and that's really interesting because I think again in a dog where you incidentally find a splenic mass we definitely need to be like oh no hold on this is this is 50 50 this could be absolutely zero uh, to worry about you know and and certainly more importantly not condemning them particularly when they're not clinical in any way shape or form with like I said condemning them in that moment just because you found that quite quite and then and then there's other risk factors you know they're, they're out there they're published but you know, the difference between large and small breed dogs, the proportion of malignancy to benign lesions is different. Um, and people have looked for other things as well. So the size of the mass compared to the dog's body weight, with a presumption that if the mass can get bigger and not bleed compared to the size of the dog, then maybe it's more benign. Um, you know, so people have looked for these things. And, and there are some interesting pieces of literature out there on, on dog size and risk of malignancy. There's one that came out in JVEC um, not too long ago, and it has this thing called the, the HELP score, which is a hemangiosarcoma kind of risk prediction score in dogs. And they, they were looking at body weight, um, total plasma protein, platelet counts, and what you'd see on x-ray, uh, thoracic radiographs, um, to kind of give this prediction of what the risk of hemangiosarcoma. So specifically that histological type, not just malignancy, and they kept sort of subcategorized these dogs into low, medium, and high risk. And um, so that you know, there's interesting literature out there. If, if that kind of scoring system would help in your discussions with an owner mm. and sort of assessing risk. Mm. No, it's really interesting. We'll talk a little bit more specifically about treatment, but I think the other decision making that I think people can be challenged with. Let's move away from malignancy. So let's say this is a. a one-year-old Labrador who has been into a vet's that same day for a routine ovarian hysterectomy and has presented because of uh, bleeding within the abdomen after a routine surgery. Now again in this context let's say we've assessed coagulation because obviously some sneaky coagulopathies can can present at that kind of time of routine neutering so let's say we've assessed coagulation and that's completely fine. When we're talking about tumours, bleeding tumours, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, often the decision is, look, the bleeding is what's killing your dog right now. As you very eloquently said, the bleeding is killing your dog. If you just want this problem to be solved, we need to go in, get the spleen out and get the bleeding under control. 
with bleeding post-routine abdominal surgery, is it as cut and dried as that? Is it as immediately, yes, let's go in, we just need to go in, find the source of the bleeding, get this sorted out? Or is it a bit more complicated from a decision-making point of view? I think, I think that raises um, two uh, really interesting things that we can explore. Um, so one is, one is the difference between a hemorrhaging tumour um, and the other is decision-making on when to intervene, uh, you know, versus how long you stabilise and monitor for uh, to see what the trend is and the change, you know, in the animal's cardiovascular stability and things, um, which is going to make a significant difference on the safety of your anaesthesia and drug carrying capacity, you know, all that kind of thing. I would say um, it, 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 uh, my decisions rest on a, a combination of factors and some of them are uh, very similar between those two groups of dogs. So the post-op bleed versus uh, the bleeding mass. So one would be um, how acute the presentation is. And um, so, you know, if this is the day after a procedure and they just you know, they just drop off a cliff face in terms of their cardiovascular stability, um, then that's worrying. You know, if they were a little bit quiet and they're just getting quieter, I think you, you're aware, you know, you've got a trend with maybe a little bit more time to have you get your thinking cap on. I also think it's the volume of abdominal fluid as well. And then if that's confirmed to be blood, you know, trying to, to some degree, quantify that. Now, I think that's possible. You can do these kind of um, quadrant scores, you know, like a one, two, three or four quadrants have, a, you know, fluid in. And I think they're not bad because if you're moving from one to two to three quadrants, you know that the fluid volume is increasing. I've occasionally heard people talk about numbers, number of centimetres of fluid. So they'll say, oh, I scanned it before and there was two centimetres and then I scanned it half an hour later and there was four. Well, maybe if it's the same person scanning in the same location, I find that more reliable. But if it's different people using it as if it's like some kind of super objective measurement, I'm very sceptical of that. I don't think it's that great. And neither is abdominal girth. Abdominal girth doesn't work very well at all. Um, whereas body weight uh, can work if you're putting fluids into them because you, you know the kind of volume that you put in. And certainly if you're looking for ascites development, say after shunt surgery or something body weight's great but i think if it you know if it looks like there's only a little bit of fluid and it's quite hard to find it and this is the day post-op and the dog's a bit quiet and a bit pale i'd probably fluid bolus it and then see what happens to its blood pressure and its demeanor and its heart rate um and not panic too much if it comes in and it's through the floor um and i scan it and it looks like it's you can't your organs can't find organs for fluid and you can see sort of mesentery wafting around like weed at the bottom of the sea, then I'm thinking, Christ, there's a, you know, there's a lot of fluid in there. Um, even, even I can find it. And then, you know, I will, my, a lot of my decision-making is actually based on response to intravenous fluid resuscitation. Um, you know, if they rapidly respond and then they stay stable for an hour or two with careful monitoring, then I know I've got plenty of time. If I'm having to repeatedly fluid bolus, you know, three, four times and I'm getting nowhere or I get somewhere and then they immediately decompensate in the next 10, 15 minutes, I know that there's something ongoing and that's going to force my hand to, to get in that abdomen sooner. Yeah, I think there's some couple of really good points there, I think, as well as, and, and this 
this is across the board with these cases, not regardless of what the reason for the bleeding is. You know, if they're presenting, um, if they're presenting with uh, increased heart rates, you know, uh, blood pressure measurements that are lower than they should be, um, regardless of what the PCV is, we should be initially using crystalloid fluids almost certainly as part of their fluid resuscitation. And I think that's important, like they will all benefit, particularly if they are decompensating with heart rate, heart rate and blood pressure, they will benefit from um, crystalloid fluid resuscitation. And we normally do that in a bolus fashion. So, um, you know, I think um, there's an interesting discussion, particularly in these cases, about kind of just very careful fluid resuscitation. So this is not about giving them their full volume resuscitation 60 to 90 mils per kilogram in a bolus that's not what we're doing and there's so many reasons that that's not the right thing to do we're giving them boluses incremental boluses of crystalloids 10 to 20 mils per kilogram uh, over 15 to 20 minutes let's say and assessing their response and that's the first important thing the second important thing that you've you've mentioned there is how long does that response last for? And that's key because we know that these crystalloids are not going to really stick around in the circulation for very long. So 20 to 30 minutes later, it's all going to be dispersed. And if you get that response tail off, response tail off, and I've seen that happen where dogs literally will rise from the dead um, and then it'll be like, oh, down again, you know, and then you're not getting, like you say, you're not getting that prolonged response. And then we need to start thinking about is more crystalloids the right thing to do or do we then need to be reaching for other products and that usually is in the um in the the in the form of of blood products because they are anemic and they require replacement of red blood cells that was an interesting thing we've had this discussion actually on the floor before how quickly are we reaching for those blood cells if they are actively bleeding then you're going to put those red blood cells in and they're going to maybe very quickly kind of peter out again. I think in human medicine, if you look at the trauma TV shows, they are literally, in some cases, replacing human beings' whole blood volume with the amount of blood that they're giving. They're giving such massive volumes. We've maybe got a couple of bags of packed red blood cells and we're like, oh, we have to be a wee bit careful about how we're using these because we don't have the volumes that they use in ER. We just don't have those volumes. So do we need to be careful about the timing, do you think, about when we're giving those blood products if we are kind of moving towards surgery? Yeah, that's, that's a great point. And, you know, just to explore some of the things you brought up, um, the first one I suppose would be, I do find blood a very precious resource. Um, and I don't want to just see it, you know, going straight into the vein and then straight into the abdomen and then into my suction unit. Um, but but on the other hand, you know, there is this, you know, quite correct mantra um, of, you know, replace like with like. And, you know, when we give fluids, we're largely just talking about volume to maintain that cardiac output and therefore the ability of the heart to get oxygen to the brain. But, you know, the oxygen is being carried by the hemoglobin in those red cells and so you need to have enough of them a few things really i suppose and just to cut into a few of them i would often start probably you know bearing in mind that the dog might still be hemorrhaging and bearing in mind that redistribution of crystalloid after maybe you know four 10 mil per kilo crystalloid boluses or two 20 mil per kilo crystalloid boluses and um, maybe think about an artificial colloid because that might hold some volume in the circulation 
um, for a little bit longer. So then I'll be thinking about the artificial colloids, uh, you know, on top of my crystalloid as well, and making sure that crystalloid is still going in because that's going to uh, deal with some of the sort of dehydration that, that causes because you're pulling fluid out of its cellular space. Um, and then, yeah, thinking about like for like with the blood, but probably not uh, not before I've made a decision that this dog is going to have surgery rather than be euthanized um, because that would seem a terrible waste of this precious resource. Um, and, and also maybe, you know, doing everything we can with our crystallized and artificial colloid and then starting that blood as we're moving to theatre to minimise loss but maximise benefit in terms of, you know, oxygen carrying and safety of the anaesthetic, the drug carrying capacity um, with either whole blood or packed cells and added, added fresh frozen plasma. But yeah, it's a really difficult one because, you know, I, trying to preserve those, those cells, but on the other hand, um, give what the animal needs so that it's going to survive can be a real sort of tightrope. And I used to probably be more tight with blood than I am nowadays because, uh, but it, it, you know, I think it, it very much depends on that patient, what you think's bleeding, how badly. Because the other thing you can do, of course, and there's again a difference between a dog who's got heme abdomen with a tumor and a dog who's got heme abdomen as a consequence of, say, a slipped ligature. In a slipped ligature, I'd be quite quick and confident to take some of that hemorrhagic effusion off the abdomen and whack it through a blood filter straight back into that dog. And because that's going to provide a lot of protein, cells, and fluid. Um, and you don't have the same maybe consideration of, you know, neoplasia, neoplastic cells just uh, being disseminated around the system. Um, so I think, you know, that, that's certainly a consideration as well, you know, auto-transfusing these dogs. And you don't necessarily need, it's ideal to have a cell saver or something very, very posh to do that. But, you know, you can just do it in a quite a low-tech way. Um, and so maybe that's a, another alternative to using up, you know, the two bags that you've got uh, living in the fridge. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely right. And I think, you know, yes, I think the the particularly with that slip ligature case, I would absolutely not be wasting that, as you say, very precious resource. And really, you just need to put it as long as you're putting it through a, an appropriate filter, you know, as, as you would do any blood product, actually, then I think that is, um, you know, a, a definitely not one one to be wasting uh, for sure. There was a couple of other, you know, sort of a couple of other concepts that I think are really interesting um, that are maybe newer-ish. I wanted actually, I was um, thinking about human trauma patients um, and whether they're bleeding into their abdomen or into their pelvic spaces, you know, very, you know, pelvic trauma being a common thing. Very, very routinely trauma patients with bleeding when you're a human will be given uh, tranexamic acid. Um, which is an antifibrinolytic and and certainly we use that more and more in veterinary patients and I do think that particularly in traumatic bleeding um, that we should be considering uh, tranexamic acid in these cases obviously as with everything the evidence uh, with animals is not going to be as good as, as humans but certainly extrapolating from those human studies it's very clear that there's a benefit to using tranexamic acid in those uh, patients. The other interesting thing, um, which you do get if you're a human trauma patient and you're bleeding, is even if you're bleeding 
as I said, because of trauma and not because of a, a coagulation problem, you'll often get a platelet transfusion um, in these traumatic uh, circumstances. And again, that's a resource that we don't have in, in veterinary medicine. But as as things maybe develop, that might be something that actually does form part of how we manage these bleeding patients, even if it's not a platelet problem, giving more platelets may be beneficial in some of these contexts. Oh, yeah. I mean, they always go down, don't they? Um, mm. You know, and we often uh, almost recognize routinely that they are, have a degree of a low platelet count with any kind of hemorrhage. And maybe, and quite rightly, you say, like, we don't necessarily have the evidence, um, but maybe that makes tranexamic or something even more important um, if we think we might be to some degree, well, potentially hyperfibrinolytic, which is the main thing with TXA. But, you know, if we think that we might be a bit thrombocytopathic as well, or if we're thrombocytopenic, we just want all those platelets to be doing as much as they possibly can be doing. Maybe it's even more supportive to give something that can help in maybe a coagulopathy of hemorrhage. And in people, it's recognised that's 20 to 25% of people get a coagulopathy of major hemorrhage after trauma. I just expect probably that we just under um, recognising that in, in the animals we deal with. Yeah. yeah, and that's absolutely right. So I think, you know, you, even if a coagulopathy is not the cause, actually it might be something that develops because of the trauma or the whatever, you know, actually, whether that's consumption, whether that's, a, as you say, a, a thrombocytopathia, you know, many factors probably very com. And I think that's the interesting thing about coagulation. It's so complex. Who even knows? How, you know, it's so complex across the board that there there probably is a, f- a far greater benefit to some of these things than we even know. How often do you find yourself reaching for tranexamic acid in some of these cases more and more um i suppose i only really started con- coming into contact with it um maybe uh four three or four years ago yeah probably about four years ago um and uh, you know we were using it mainly intravenously um in generally when we almost recognized coagulopathy uh, but certainly in the last sort of eight 12 to 18 months if i see an animal that's got significant hemorrhage it's getting some because I've not yet recognized um, any complications or side effects. That doesn't mean they don't exist. Um, and other than, you know, maybe nausea with high IV dosing in a conscious dog. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, we, I'll reach for it very quickly. And I feel anecdotally that it's made a significant difference in, in some of these animals. Mm. I think, yeah, I mean, we obviously, no drug is completely benign. I think you make a really interesting point about the, the nausea inducing effects of tranexamic acid as with many of these drugs that cause nausea like morphine or tranexamic acid i tend to find that you don't see those effects when the dogs are unwell so i tend to find that actually like for instance morphine if you use morphine as a pre-med for your bitch space which i used to do when i worked at the pdsa they'd all vomit but when you give morphine to a dog that's collapsed and sick and whatever else they don't really care <laughs> so that you don't tend I, I honestly i feel you don't tend to see those effects and we're lucky we're lucky as well because we can use i mean i would generally give them if it was intraoperative and i was thinking i was going to use it post-op um you know i would also give them some meropitin citrate yeah. as well yeah absolutely and i think it's, it's interesting actually because it's in some studies the tranexamic acid has been shown to be as an effective as an, a, an emetic as apomorphine um oh, wow. you know so actually yeah no it's it's it but interesting but so I read those studies and I'm always like oh that's really interesting 
But actually, for me personally, clinically, and maybe that's to do with the patients we're giving it to, I've never perceived that. But like you say, I've also almost always given them meropotent as well, because we know that that's a potential, uh, we know that's a potential yeah. effect. And, and so for the benefit of anybody who's not used it before, I mean, we, our routine dose, we tend to use something like 10 mg per kick in TID, you know, Q8 hours, IV, and you can get a perose form and that doesn't seem to cause as much nausea, but of course, um, you know, it depends on the condition you're treating and how you're going to administer. But, uh, you know, I know people who go up to sort of 15, even 20 mg per kick TID if they are, have a genuine coagulopathy or they, you know, really quite concerned. And I think that's when you start to see, you know, some of that nausea. Just to kind of, um, to finish up, what, what, <laughs> you can be very honest, as you always are, actually, I don't need to tell you to be honest, that's ridiculous. <laughs> um, so we work together, as we've said, and so I come to you at five o'clock on a Friday afternoon. Which you would because you're a medic. <laughs> Have you, have you tried steroids yet before you refer it to me? No, so, uh, no. So, and I oh. know that's, that's, a, that's a fail. So I come to you at five o'clock on a Friday and I said, you know, this is a hemoabdomen. I think it's going to have to go to theatre. What, tell me about the things that annoy you. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, so tell me, right. So as a person coming to you, so apart from the obvious annoyance of it being five o'clock on a Friday, so let's, that's a given. Well, no, we... no, I mean, I'll tell you what, it, it wouldn't annoy me if it had arrived at 4.30. If, but if you're like, <laughs> I had this dog in, right, since uh, nine o'clock this morning. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's say it did arrive at 4.30 and I was being very efficient and we were on it. Are there any little things that we, that you think, oh, but you've not done this, you've not done this, you've not done this, you've not done this. Is there kind of th a checklist in your mind that makes you say, right, no, they've done a good job here. I'll I'll take okay. this on the chin. So I'll tell you what, yeah, that's a really, a really interesting question. Um, and, and probably, and a lot of it's pattern recognition, isn't it? Because it speeds things up. Um, but sometimes that can lead you down the wrong, the wrong path. But the things that I would find really helpful is firstly that it's a confirmed diagnosis um, so you know we talked about abdominal centesis um, rather than just free abdominal fluid uh, because it can make such a massive difference where you're going secondly that the owner knows what the problem is <laughs> um, and, uh, and thirdly that there's been a discussion that they want surgery um, because obviously I'm being consulted as a surgeon and they wouldn't just put the dog to sleep if there was a strong suspicion of neoplasia. Um, because, you know, if then I'm having conversations into the evening from a dog who's been referred and the owner's like, oh, I had no idea it could be any of this. I would have just put him to sleep two hours ago um, at my vet's, you know, and now I've spent all this money talking to you and I wouldn't have even, been, I wouldn't have even driven down the road. I suppose they're the bits that annoy me. And, it, and that's not so much to do with case management. It's just common sense practicality like you know rather than dropping it on somebody as oh i think it's this i'm going home it's this is a confirmed thing the owner's keen to proceed they've got an understanding of prognosis and costs and then i'll take it from there and then i think for them from a clinical perspective that appropriate stabilization things have been at least started you know we're talking about appropriate fluid bolusing not just having the dog on twice maintenance fluids and and then and it's had proper analgesia and i, I think that's the main things for me yeah 
and I think just yeah and good points there I think also that there's you don't need to be no disrespect but you don't need to be a surgeon to have a conversation about very sort of defined you know those percentages that you mentioned as well really helpful if we've got a splenic mass let me tell you what we know about this splenic mass you know let's talk about and how you feel about surgery, you know, and I think that's a very good point too, because there are some owners, regardless of statistics and headlines, who just don't want to go, they will just not want to put their dog through surgery. Um, and again, it's our job to give them options, never to make any judgments about them financially until we've presented those financial options to them um, and let them make a dis- an informed decision. And 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 that's... You know, I, I, there was someone on the on the podcast a few weeks ago who who said, which I really liked. You know, it's not our job to X-ray a client's wallet. You know, it's, we or make any preconceptions about any of that sort of stuff. Oh gosh, no, no. And we've got to just be giving them the options that are available. Really, you know. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's you know, it's it's to, You know, we might feel sorry for them, but if they want to, you know, sell the car or remortgage the house to do it, then. You know, that's absolutely their choice as long as we've given them all of the information that can help them make an appropriate risk, benefit, you know, value analysis for themselves. It's, it's their life. No, you're absolutely right. So I'll take all of that on board. Um, <laughs> we have for next Friday. <laughs> for next Friday, when actually I'll tell, you, I'll tell yeah. you a little tale from this weekend, if you like. Um, Please do. So we, we actually had um, two dogs uh, come into us. Um, one... Uh, had an, a sort of an acute collapse and then very quickly stabilised um, with an intravenous fluid therapy bolus and had a CT um, at a referring vets. And that dog actually had a retroperitoneal hemorrhage from an adrenal mass. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that dog was super stable. So he's just been on analgesia over the weekend. And he's going to get full investigation. So that's an example of a hemorrhage that can be self-limiting. And I think because it's in a different biological compartment, you know, not hemorrhaging into the abdomen, but mm-hmm. under tamponade in the retroperitoneum. Mm. Uh, but then we had another a little um, geriatric dachshund, bless it, that had heme abdomen, um, presumed um, splenic because 85% of spleen. But that dog, it was interesting, it wasn't responding to repeated crystalloid fluid bolusing. Its blood pressure was stable as a rock and okay. We gave a colloid fluid bolus as well. And then when we started to think about the blood, we typed it and it wasn't coagulopathic and all of that. Um, but we had that pragmatic discussion of, you know, the bleeding is what's going to kill your dog here. And we are struggling with stabilization. Our interpretation is ongoing hemorrhage that we can't keep up with. The leak in the bucket is too big for me to just keep filling the bucket up from the tap. And, um, so we went for a pragmatic surgery because they were determined that irrespective of what the cause was, they wanted to try, and that's fine. And that dog actually turned out to be one of the less than 2% with a bleeding adrenal mass into the abdomen. And it actually had a, a FAO of the right cranial pole, sorry, the cranial pole of the right adrenal. Um, and, you know, so you can be caught out. And then, you know, I suppose retrospectively, it makes sense that the dog remained tachycardic with a, a normal blood pressure despite us challenged with a uncontrollable hypovolemia because you know it's basically releasing its own vasopressors um, so you know you do, you do get these things so it's worthwhile being aware of them not being terrified by them you know odds are it'll be a splenic mass but I think very sensible to say to an owner if you are going to do a pragmatic exploratory look 
this is probably a splenic mass. I can't see it for sure because I'm not very good at ultrasound. Um, or, you know, everything's just very difficult to see in there, however you want to phrase it. Uh, but I tell people I'm not very good at ultrasound. <laughs> but like, um, you know, but I'm happy enough that whatever I find in there, I'll probably be, be capable in terms of a, a, you know, like an actual physical act of doing it to deal with. But I think, you know, if we're talking pragmatics here, it's okay to say to an owner who wants you to go in and have a look. But, but there are just these odd things that are very, very difficult to deal with. And either we might not be able to deal with it um, or, you know, would you prefer to go somewhere else just in case? I mean, I think it, it, it's very challenging, but I think we can manage expectations and, and make some, you know, just cover our bums a bit when we're having these chats before we just jump in. Mm. And I think, it, well, it all comes down, I think, to, to communication and expectation, actually, fundamentally, and that goes a long way. So, no, really, really helpful. Just to say a massive thank you again to Lou and to John for being just such amazing guests again today. Uh, and a big thank you to our sponsors, Veterinary Instrumentation, for their uh, wonderful uh, collaboration and support. As always, I want to thank you all for listening. Your ongoing support is just so massively appreciated. To learn more about VTX, then do head over to our website, which is www.vtx-cpd.com. Uh, and please give us a wee like, follow and share on our social media. And remember to check out that Lone Star Ring Retractor too. You've never seen anything like it. <laughs> anyway, big thank you. Big thank you again. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>